0: Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the History of the Seventh-day Adventist Church podcast, episode number one, In the Beginning. So I want to begin by appealing to Stephen Prothrow to answer the question I imagine you're probably all thinking, Seventh-day Adventist, what is that? And if you're one of the few who do know, you might wonder why you should even care. Good questions. Enter Prothro. A friend of mine introduced me to one of his books when I was in grad school called Religious Literacy. Basically, he argues that Americans go to church and synagogue and mosque and all of that, but that we really don't have any idea what these other religions believe. He has some pretty embarrassing examples, like when he cited a pole that showed that 10% of Americans think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Really? That's not just a tragedy for religious people, either. Historians, you're in this boat, too. His whole shtick is that our ignorance is costly. On September 11th, a man was shot in Arizona at a gas station because he wore a turban. He was Sikh, not Muslim. But the gunman didn't know the difference, and that's kind of Prothro's game. Whether you're religious or not, knowing about religions and different beliefs helps you be a more well-rounded person and a better citizen. So this is my way of answering the call. We need to know more about what each other believes. Christians, Jews, Muslims, atheists, etc., this isn't an attempt to proselytize or to convert anyone. It's an attempt to inform. I'm an Avenist, so I figured I'm as good as anyone to be the little tour guide here. Just don't forget to check out the gift shop on your way out. So if you don't have any clue about Adventists, then welcome aboard. Consider yourself on the path to literacy. And if you're already an Avenist and are listening to figure out what your spiritual parents were like, then welcome aboard. Consider yourself on the path to finding out you actually inherited all your craziness and that it's not your fault. Woo! Don't you feel better? Where to begin? If you've heard anything about Adventists, then you probably heard that they go to church on Saturday instead of Sunday, or that they believe some woman from the nineteenth century was a prophet, or that they all seem to be bizarrely vegetarian. Once, when I was part of a team conducting a religious survey in Baltimore, I ran into this one guy who asked what church I went to. I told him I was Adventist, and he suddenly decided that the questions were over. He informed me that he wanted nothing to do with the Adventist church because they were the ones who elected George Bush into office, of course. As we'll see, Adventists and politics has a long and tense relationship, and if that gentleman from Baltimore is listening right now, I'd just like to repeat again, trust me, we didn't put anyone into office, and if you're interested, I have an unfinished survey I'd love to send you. Forgive me, I just need closure. All sorts of stuff is flung around when it comes to groups we know little about, Freemasons, Mormons illuminati scientology whoever organizes ncaa playoff games and yes adventists so if you're content with a tabloid and rumor understanding of adventists i'm sure there are a dozen web pages with red backgrounds and a yellow comic sans font that will dish out the goods with pictures for everyone else please step this way it's a bit of a longer journey and we sadly don't have pictures but i think you'll find it a little more fulfilling With that off my chest, let's go back to the beginning of it all and talk about the world that Adventism grew out of. Believers would choose the name Seventh-day Adventist in 1863, but its founding members really began intersecting about 20 years earlier in the aftermath of something called the Advent Movement, which itself was part of the larger religious woodstock known as the Second Great Awakening. If you live in the South and are wondering why there seem to be more Baptist churches than there are McDonald's, you can thank the Second Great Awakening. It shot people out of a cannon into the safety nets of Baptist and Methodist churches, which eventually overpowered the more established Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Episcopalians, as the Anglicans in America came to be known after the war. The evangelical spirit of the Second Great Awakening was Adventism's cradle. It was the cradle of a lot of religious movements, and its effects are still felt today. But let's step back for a few minutes and look at the role religion played in the nation as a whole. This is kind of like getting to know the parents of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in an effort to understand why they turned out the way they did. So let's go say hi to mom and dad. Religion had a complicated role in the Revolutionary War, so much so that some people saw the war as a conflict between religions, Joseph Galloway, a close friend of Benjamin Franklin's and an unabashed supporter of the crown, blamed the Presbyterians and Congregationalists whose, quote, principles of religion and polity were equally averse to those of the established church and government, end quote. Galloway saw those groups as having used their pulpits to whip up level-headed Americans into sedition over the Stamp Act of 1765, by which Britain put a hefty tax on the colonies. The Stamp Act arrived because Britain had just concluded a super expensive war with France in America, we'll call, I don't know, the French and Indian War. It had taken seven long years, and as a result, Britain's debt had doubled. So the English said, hey, why are we defending the colonists over there and having to foot the bill? What do we get out of this? That would be like the America of today invading Iraq and taking oil to help foot the bill. You know, far-fetched the colonists themselves were delighted at the war. They painted the war as a war for religious freedom and liberty against the Catholic French. Go Protestants! But they didn't exactly like the idea of paying for the war. Aren't you the government? Isn't protecting us already included in the bill? Why else do we pay taxes? Once the colonists saw the bill, not only would they not be leaving a tip, but many of them were pretty certain that they were just going to get up and walk out. They definitely would not be eating at that restaurant anymore. The truth is that... Opposition to the act was more widespread than just in the churches, but the role of religion cannot be underestimated. The road to the Revolutionary War was paved with all the rhetoric of religion. The loyalist Anglicans, for example, argued that the colonists should follow Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul argues that the Christians should submit to government. Yet shortly after the Boston Massacre, a colonist made a tapestry called the Hanging of Absalom you might remember Absalom as David's son who rebelled and was eventually killed in his effort to flee the battle. But the story is repurposed for the colonists, with King David indifferently playing the harp while Joab, who's conspicuously dressed as a redcoat, kills poor Absalom. We might say they took a few artistic and spiritual liberties in, I don't know, making Absalom the good guy and David the bad guy. When the war had begun, many clergy members served as chaplains. Some even went further, as in the case of Peter Muhlenberg, a Lutheran who tore his clerical robes during church to reveal a Virginia militia's uniform. When Presbyterian minister James Caldwell's unit ran out of paper wadding, he stole into a Presbyterian church and hauled as many Isaac Watts hymnals as he could carry, saying, Put Watts into them, boys. On the other side, there were numerous Anglican pastors who fought for or supported the British as well. To be clear, religion didn't cause the war, but many churches and Christians weren't afraid of using their faith to justify the war, just like today. Just as Americans were throwing off the shackles of political traditions and the rule of politicians in distant lands, so America's churches were beginning to throw off the shackles of religious traditions and the rule of clergy in distant lands. Anglican ministers, upon their ordination, all had to swear to support the crown, Americans increasingly looked upon this with suspicion as the political mood began to change. Suddenly, it was difficult to be an Anglican and an American. Maybe this whole idea of a political leader also being the head of the church, as the kings and queens of England have been ever since Henry VIII, isn't going to fit in the new order of things in America. What we need are churches independent of the state. Hmm. This seems like a good time to step back and get the big picture. An anthropologist named Kenelm Burridge once described the formula for cultural change as going from a period of old rules to no rules to new rules. The idea is that there are these old ideas that have been around since forever, but when someone bucks the system and there is this period of change during which nobody really knows what the rules are anymore, after that the dust settles and new rules go and replace the old ones. Time goes by before someone else stands up and says, hey, these old ideas have been here since forever, and then the process starts over again. Think of it like this. When you're a kid, it's all about the old rules. If your parents tell you to do something, you usually do it. No questions asked, right? Well, at some point during your teenage years, you start to question everything. That'd be the no rules stage. And when or if you mature and grow up, deciding you don't want to raise your kids like your parents raised you, you start your own family and realize the importance of putting down some new rules. Eh, it's not a perfect analogy, but the concept of understanding societal shifts this way is pretty helpful. So we could say that the Revolutionary War in the Federalist area represents the old rules, while the revivals of the Second Great Awakening represent a period of no rules. The post Civil War Reconstructionism finally provided new rules and stability. This is a nifty framework when we're understanding the Adventist church, because the movement also solidified and settled down in the 1860s, right in the middle of the Civil War. Adventists weren't done learning and growing, but it was the time of making a transition from a movement to an institutionalized church. But I'll reiterate what I said about being too dogmatic about dates, take it as a general guide. So basically, the period we're dealing with between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War is kind of like America's teenage years. It was a time of massive change in society. Paul Revere, like many veterans, went back to his normal job of being a silversmith and began training his sons to also work as silversmiths because that's how things are done. But things had changed. Immigrants from England and continental Europe brought the technology and skill needed to set up America's first factories. Before long, steamboats, toll roads, and early examples of mass production began to pop up. Nevertheless, it was a time of uncertainty. Old traditions were being uprooted. But with what? Would these new principles of government hold up? How could America pay back her war debt to France and the Netherlands? Collecting taxes was more an art than a science, and that meant the central government was fragile. Rebellions had to be forcibly put down, and several of the founding fathers expressed fear that their hard-fought gains wouldn't last. Thomas Jefferson thought things were going backwards, not forward. Alexander Hamilton decided that he didn't really fit into what he called, quote, this American world. And John Adams wondered when order could come to this chaos decades after the war. Meanwhile, America's distilleries produced a yearly rate of five gallons per capita as Americans outdrank Europe and every subsequent generation of Americans to date. If alcohol consumption is an accurate way to gauge the mood of an era, it was definitely a time of, eh, let's just forget our problems. The old guard of America's political leaders were not too optimistic about their future. But many Christians were optimistic. Sure, faith in institutional churches faltered, but who needs those old guys? Just as the old top-heavy way of doing politics was over, so was the top-heavy way of doing church. It's time for something new and exciting. While a lot of interesting ideas emerged in the Second Great Awakening... I just want to talk about a few that really became a part of Adventism. After the victory over the British, America expanded rapidly. Before the war, America comprised some 360,000 square miles. After the war, Britain ceded some 800,000 more square miles, essentially giving the colonies everything west of the Mississippi. Twenty years later, President Jefferson bought another 800,000 square miles from France, by 1850, America pretty much resembled what it does today. The point is that all this happened in a person's lifetime, and so the frontiers were ever moving. The old concept of establishing a town, building a church, and paying an educated pastor to move there wasn't viable. The Methodists famously established circuit riders, preachers who'd travel from town to town. But another innovation was the camp meeting. Preachers would ride into areas and hold camp meetings where people would, you guessed it, camp out and listen to a series of preachers make calls for them to accept Jesus. These were pretty big deals and not limited to any particular denomination. In some cases, preachers were several denominations came together. That really appealed to people on the frontier who had more to worry about than complex theological doctrines. The speakers weren't theologians, but often common people. Locals would be recruited to lead the crowd in singing songs that everybody knew. Those preachers could haul in crowds of tens of thousands of people because this was the coolest show in town. It was also cutting-edge technology. There weren't enough church buildings or trained ministers to sit stationary at a church in this vast American territory, so camp meetings were a way for preachers to take church to the people. Plus, when there was no Starbucks or movie theater nearby, it was probably the most interesting thing to do. It certainly dished out spiritual blessings to people, but it probably also functioned as a way to hear news and catch up with old friends. The truth is that Seventh-day Adventists, like many other Christian groups, really latched on to this camp meeting thing. The only thing is, they haven't really let go yet. Yep, Adventists still hold camp meetings in America. They're usually in the summer, around one of their colleges or high schools, lasting some three to ten days. Full disclaimer, You don't actually have to camp these days. You can if you want, but many people opt for dorm rooms, RVs, or hotel rooms. They're definitely a lot more polished and don't really resemble the revival emphasis of the early 1800s, but they're still around 200 years later. But in those early days, camp meetings helped the Adventist church reach a much larger area than they might have been able to do otherwise. The Second Great Awakening targeted those who didn't go to church more than before with the result being that there was this feeling of a fresh breeze wafting through the religious experience of many people. New people were coming into churches with fresh enthusiasm. The Calvinist churches didn't benefit from this as much, possibly because the stodgy old Puritan mentality that men were predestined was increasingly at odds with the emerging American mood. America had just beaten the English and felt the rush of having taken destiny into their own hands. Lewis and Clark had braved the wild to prove that America was huge, with immense promise of adventure and advancement. It was a heady time to live. The world was changing, and if you were in the new world, it was changing for the better. The irresistible hand of providence gave way to manifest destiny. Finally, the Second Great Awakening introduced what Adventist historian George Knight called Millennial Fever. The Great Lisbon Earthquake of 1755 was one of the deadliest earthquakes in history, being felt from Finland to the Caribbean. This got people thinking about some verses they'd read in the Bible about such things happening in the last days. Was God trying to get their attention? The French Revolution only seemed to confirm it. The Goddess of Reason was paraded around while France was being de-Christianized. Napoleon's forces even stormed down to Rome and took the Pope captive. Something was happening, right? As the late Notre Dame professor Ernest Sandine once wrote, "...America in the early 19th century was drunk on the millennium." The millennium he speaks of was this idea that a thousand years of peace would soon be upon us. It was a concept lifted from the Bible which depicts Jesus and the saints spending a millennium together in bliss before the final judgment. Charles Finney, really one of the greatest American preachers of the time, wrote that, quote, if the church will do her duty, the millennium may come in this country in three years, end quote. It was very much a the end is near mentality that existed among many Christians, but that wasn't a bad thing, because the end meant a golden age was near. One newspaper wrote that, quote, the world is not growing worse, but better, end quote. One man wrote that, quote, the golden age of our race is yet to come. Numerous indications of providence seem to show that it may not be very distant, end quote. But the event cannot take place, he went on to say, without appropriate human instrumentality, end quote. So get to work, you louts. You can certainly understand the optimism. America was rapidly expanding in territory. Americans had just beaten a global superpower, They were embarking on a new form of government, the likes of which the world had never seen. The Industrial Revolution was, well, revolutionizing life in every way. Churches were exploding with energy and fresh conviction. It was a new age, unlike anything the world had ever seen. But not everyone thought a thousand years of peace were on our doorstep. One man, in particular, was about to stand up and swim against the stream of optimism. He would be a force unlike anything America had ever seen. His name was William Miller. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is History Project.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenues History podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So, if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again at havanneshistoryproject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So, just to be very 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 clear,